everybody. Nice to see you. I'm Darren, and uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter 2. So each one of these nights, uh, we're going to work through a different chapter, so we'll be able to sequentially kind of work our way through. We won't get through the whole book of Daniel, uh, because as you may know, the first six chapters are narrative in form. Uh, the se- 7 through 12, the last six chapters are apocalyptic, prophetic literature. It's a great read. It's an interesting read. I worked on a uh, like a summary, I was going to try and do a summary for all of you, and I was telling Jason earlier today, it was like too much to try and do in one message to try and summarize all of that, but I- I'll give you a one-sentence summary of Daniel 7 through 12, and it's this, uh, no earthly kingdom shall stand. Uh, like if you look at all the prophetic passages at the end of Daniel, the essence of it, and we'll actually see a similar, a similar dream like that here in Daniel 2, but the essence of 7 through 12 is essentially God through Daniel saying to us, there are going to be all these earthly kingdoms that come and go, but the only kingdom that, that will be around forever, or the only indomitable kingdom is the kingdom of God. And we'll see that even in two. Uh, I, I just had some folks ask me if this was my best series from church from the last year, and uh, I had to think about it for a second. We've been in a series at church in Genesis for the last year and a half, so I could not think of a way to condense that series into six messages for you all. So this is, uh, this is a thing I've loved for a long time. I actually think I taught through the narrative portions of Daniel at Hume Lake in 2007 for one of our high school themes, Um, and then I taught it again in Long Beach. Uh, So I've been in this a couple of times, but but it is just a it's a very precious uh, narrative section to me because I think it's always relevant. Doesn't matter when we are, what time we find ourselves in, what's happening in the world. To me, it it always feels intensely relevant and and helpful. So. Um, if I were to think of a title for this study, I would probably call it uh, People of Influence in the Midst of Exile. That's probably what I'd call it. I hesitate to call it People of Influence in the Midst of Exile because when it comes to the relatability for all of us, I, I don't consider us to be an exile. Like, that's not where we are. We are wanderers and sojourners or ambassadors, like I talked about this morning, but we, we haven't been banished by God, right? We haven't been removed. God's put us exactly where He wants us. He's got us in the place where we are, whether that's uh, Central California or Idaho or wherever you're from, uh, G- God has created you uniquely to have an influence on the people He's put around you. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the, the picture that Jesus talks about with regard to the body, that each one of us brings something unique and different, and it's only in our togetherness, number one, that we, that we begin to understand something of the, the like unknowable love of God in its height and depth and width and length, that's Ephesians 3, but also that we start to have an impact on the people around us because not only does he make us uniquely, but then he surrounds us with people who are uniquely suited to hear the truth from us as well. So God's put people around you that I think you, you want to be a person of influence in their lives. And for me, this is instructive and helpful. So in Daniel chapter 1, uh, we read about these young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who uh, uh, among a bunch of others were taken from their homeland and the beautiful, precious things from the temple were taken And what we talked about this morning was their ability to neither fight the culture nor conform to the culture, but rather have a transformative presence in the midst of the culture by being discerning about what to say yes to and what to say no to. Um, Tonight, as we move into two, uh, Daniel and his friends have moved into a place of sort of greater responsibility, although it's not even yet as great as it will be. But in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream that troubles him, and he needs interpretation for it. So let's just begin by reading this together, and then we'll go from here. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Okay, I just want to pause for a second here and say, this is the way hucksters always do what they do, right? So we've got magicians and enchanters and Chaldeans and all of these people, and their job is to give the king a favorable impression. That's why they have their job, right? None of these people have supernatural power. None of them have the ability to tell what the, what the king's dream is. But whatever he tells them, same thing if you were to go to a palm reader today, 
You go to a palm reader, and what, the way they make their money is by making you feel good about whatever they told you, right? So the magicians and the enchanters and the wise men and the soothsayers, they come back to Nebuchadnezzar and they go, well, tell us what your dream was and we'll tell you what it means. And had he done that, you can be certain they would have said, well, what this dream means is that you're going to live a long time and you're going to get very rich and all the other kings are going to kneel before you. And they would, have, they would have fed him whatever they thought he wanted to hear. The, the problem in this particular case is that he isn't telling them the dream. So he's insisting that they demonstrate their supernatural ability, which they don't have, right? So he, they say to him, uh, O king, live forever. Tell us your dream, and we'll show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your, house, your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, you might underline that sentence. It's going to come up again. They say there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. All right, so you're caught up. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He calls all the wise men in and says, tell me what the dream was in interpretation. They can't do it because that's not their game. And so he says, okay, well, we're going to tear you limb from limb, and we're going to reduce all your houses to rubble, And uh, because I, I can tell you guys are fake, right? I can tell you're fake. So they have this conflict. I'm reminded anytime I, anytime I hear of someone who's confused or uh, is looking for interpretation or whatever, how frustrating it can be when, when there are things that you kind of feel like you should know, but you don't know and whatever. I, when, I first moved to, when I first moved to Long Beach, I had to get a new doctor. I'd been living up here at Hume Lake and uh, I'd gone to the same doctor for the 10 years or whatever, nine years that I lived here. And so when I moved to Long Beach, I had to get a new doctor. And so I go in to see this new doctor, and you know he's doing that kind of intake interview that they do when you first sign up to see a new doctor, and he's asking me a bunch of questions, and he asked me about my hobbies, you know, and I, I told him, you know, I was into music and art and video games and theater, and I like to go to concerts, and you know, I'm kind of describing the stuff I'm into, and he's asking me just all these different things about my life, but basically when I tell him about my hobbies, he goes, uh, he says, well, you're basically what, what I would describe as a sedentary lifestyle, and uh, but to be honest with you guys, I didn't know what that word meant. And so he said it to me, and I thought he was paying me a compliment. I thought he was telling me, I, I, I just assumed that like sedentary meant like artsy or like uh, into, into things of beauty. I didn't really know. It sounded good, you know. And so he says, you're, you're what we call a sedentary lifestyle. And I was like, yeah, I guess you could say that. Thanks, doctor. And he kind of looked at me weird, but then he just wrote some other things. And we went through the interview, and it was all done. And I didn't really think about that until later. I didn't think about the fact that like he had said a thing to me and I didn't really know what it meant. But I kind of got, as I, as I got home, I sort of got frustrated that there was like this, this word, because I do, I do like to read and I consider myself to be relatively knowledgeable with regard to vocabulary, you know. So I felt kind of dumb. I felt frustrated that I didn't know what it was. And of course now we have all information at our fingertips, right? So I got my phone and I just Googled the word sedentary. And it says, oh, when you pull it up, the first definition that pops up is a person whose life uh, is characterized by inactivity. And then it said in parentheses, couch potato. <laughs> right? So I'm playing back the, the conversation that I had with my brand new doctor. You know, I'm telling him about my life. I'm explaining to him all the things I care about, all the things that have value to me. And he looks at me and essentially says, uh, oh, you're, you're, as a doctor, you're what I would call a couch potato. And I said... Yeah, I guess you could say that, Doc. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. You know, like I felt so dumb, right, that I didn't know what was happening. Nebuchadnezzar's in a place of frustration, not only because he's had a troubling dream, and this won't be the last time that happens for him, 
Not only because he's had a troubling dream, but because as the king, number one, he feels like he doesn't know what's going on and he wants to know. Number two, he's got all these people on his staff that are paid to help him and he's realized that none of them actually know what they're talking about, that the whole thing is a sham. So he's angry and he issues a death warrant that includes the lives of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah because they are lumped into the wise men of the kingdom, right? So now there is a death warrant issued for these exiles' lives. So the decree went out, verse 13, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Again, if you're a note-taking person, you might circle those words, prudence and discretion. I think they're, they're meaningful and helpful to us as we're thinking about what it means to be people of influence in whatever situation we find ourselves. But Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Ariok comes and you know, he knocks on Daniel's door. And he says, hey, Daniel, I got to tell you, Nebuchadnezzar's really mad at all you guys. And he says, you got to die. So I'm here to kill you. Maybe turn around so when I stab you, you know, just, I don't want to look you in the eye or whatever. And Daniel's like, hey, what's going on? What's this? Don't know. You don't need to kill us. Uh, like, what's the problem? So here's, here's what happens. Ariok says, uh, says to him, uh, What's happened here? Verse 15, Arioch declared, or he declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So in prudence and discretion, he goes before the king and he asks for a little bit of time. He says, don't kill me yet. Maybe don't kill everybody else. Give, give me an opportunity to go beyond myself. Prudence and discretion causes him to think about the fact that this isn't something he can do, but it is something that God is capable of, right? I think it's helpful for me when I'm thinking about my interactions with people in the world to not uh, give my first response. You guys, oh, I hope, I hope you already have a policy in your life where you don't reply to emails in the first 24 hours, right? You've learned that, haven't you? That you give yourself 24 hours and you reply a little bit later because our first response is typically poor, right? It's typically heated up and it's frustrated where you're reading lines of text on a thing and, and you're implying tone and whatever. It's better to give yourself a little bit of time. Daniel says, hey, I'm happy to, I'm happy to tackle this, but I, I don't have the ability to do it on a moment's notice. I need a little bit of time. And he goes before the king and the king gives him this time. So verse 17, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, told them, to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So they go before God and they seek God and they say, hey, will you spare us, right? So again, there's a dependence upon God here. God reveals to them the answer. And then rather than just rushing off with the answer, verse 20, they, they sing his praise, right? They, they respond with poetry, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter." Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went up to him and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Okay, I want to come to a full stop, right? Because I want you to just soak this up for a second. Nebuchadnezzar has already signed the death warrant, right? He has already said, kill all the wise men and enchanters and soothsayers. That's a done deal. That decree already exists. When Arioch went to Daniel, he went there to kill Daniel and his friends, according to the king's decree. Now God has revealed to him the answer of the dream, Right? God's given him the answer he sought. They, they've praised God for that. So there's even a faithfulness in their response, uh, re their response to the faithfulness of God. Now they come before Nebuchadnezzar, and it tells us that Arioch is in a rush, right? So he, it tells us he rushes him in. 
And he puts him before Nebuchadnezzar and he says, hey, don't kill all the wise men and enchanters because I found a guy here who can tell you the thing you need to know. And Nebuchadnezzar looks at Daniel standing before him, a man who is already a dead man, a man whose death decree has already been written. And Nebuchadnezzar says, can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? If you're smart, the answer is what? Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. There's guards standing on either side with spears, right? A bunch of, uh, the death warrant has already gone out. Now you're standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar who's already frustrated and already angry and already wants you dead. And he asks you if you can tell the dream and the interpretation. The easy answer, you guys, is yes. I want you to think about that for a second. Because number one, Nebuchadnezzar has already been told no, and that made Nebuchadnezzar more mad. But, but Daniel's response is at the heart of what I want us to think about tonight when we think about influence in exile. Nebuchadnezzar looks at him in 26 and says, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No. <laughs> he said, No. And here's, here's the thing. It's a risk. He took a gamble because the moment he said no, they could have dropped him like a sack right there on the ground, right? That could have been, like, Daniel, like Nebuchadnezzar could have just been like, eh, I've heard that before. Daniel takes a risk, but it's a calculated risk, and it's an important risk that I don't want us to miss when we're thinking about the kind of influence we can have in our neighborhoods and in our, in our workspaces and in our families. Because what Daniel does here is he is adamant to not take the credit for what God has done and to be actively pointing away from himself. I think it's entirely possible that Daniel is taking his cues from Joseph, for what it's worth. Uh, Daniel certainly would have heard the story uh, of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. If you remember, uh, in Genesis 41, when Joseph is pulled out of prison, right? He'd been in prison for all that time. The baker and the butler, he'd interpreted their dreams. And they said, oh, we're going to remember you. And then they don't. And then Pharaoh has a dream, remember, about the seven years of famine and the seven years of, uh, of plentiful food. And he doesn't know the interpretation. It's almost the same thing. They pull Joseph out of Egyptian prison. They bring him before the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, can you tell me my inter you know, the interpretation of my dream? And Joseph's answer, if you look back at that in Genesis 41, is No. There is no man who can tell the Pharaoh what he wants to hear. Here's, what, Joseph, here, here's what, uh, what Daniel says after the example of Joseph, I think. Daniel answered the king in the, and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. For the record, that's almost verbatim what the wise men, enchanters, and astrologers had already said. It's like a, almost a direct quote. There is no man who can do the thing you're asking. But, and there again, if you're a note taker, maybe circle the word but, like, I know, it's, I know it's a word, but whatever, circle it. But there is no man who can do this. But, he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Daniel goes on to tell him the dream. And for the sake of our time and, and the study tonight, I don't even necessarily want to get into the dream. But he basically tells him that he's had this dream that is of a statue with several different sections. And each one of those sections represents both the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, but then the kingdoms that will come after him. And then basically there's a stone that's carved out without any human touch, and that stone smashes that statue. And the essence of the dream, if we were to skip all the way down basically to the bottom and to its interpretation, um, it says in 43, or in 44, in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure." There is a prophetic dream about the fact that no human kingdom will stand and that the kingdom of God will never be overthrown. Right? In some ways, it's not, it's not specifically a messianic prophecy, but it is a prophecy of the kingdom of God that Jesus will usher in, that we are currently in and yet not fully in. Right? That's a dream Nebuchadnezzar had all the way back in Daniel chapter 2. But the point for us today is not even to get in the weeds on the dream or its interpretation or who these kingdoms are or, any, or even any of that. What I really want us to think about for a second is what it means to be people of influence and how important it is for us to be people who are 
deflective. I like, I like what Joseph does. I like what Daniel does here. Where given the opportunity, he could have just taken credit for what God had shown him. Right? He could have taken credit for it up front. When Nebuchadnezzar looked at him and said, can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? It, it would have been fine. I don't think any of us would have discredited him if he'd have said, yeah, I have the answer. And for what it's worth, the only reason I have it is because God told me, right? But there's something really beautiful, especially in a time period like the one we live in, where so many religious leaders have made their ministries about themselves, where so many churches are centered around uh, iconic or uh, celebrity pastors, or so many ministries are built around money or big, you know, big buildings or whatever. We, we live in a world in which like, we have failed this so often. We failed so often to point away from ourselves, right? To deflect away from ourselves and to be reminding the people that we're interacting with that while we're capable of some things, the things we're capable of, we're only capable of because of who God is right? I don't think anybody in the entirety of the canon does this better than John the Baptist. And some of you who are friends of mine, you know that John the Baptist, without question, my, my favorite person in the Bible. And his speech in John chapter 3, it, without question, is my favorite speech in the Bible. And I know that's weird because it's not a Jesus speech, but I kind of think we have to get there tonight because it, it illustrates this point so beautifully, and I don't want you to miss it. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to John 3. This idea of being deflective, interesting, when we think about John the Baptist, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, if you've seen like uh, old paintings, classic paintings, I'm talking about paintings from, you know, a thousand years ago of John the Baptist, and almost all of the classic portraits of John the Baptist, take a look at his hands, because normally he'll be holding on to a staff or he'll be doing something with one of his hands, but there's always, typically, there's always one hand that's kind of mid-waist, and it's always pointing. You can find this in altarpieces. It's all over the place. And the essence of it is that classical artists recognized that John the Baptist was known for being a guy who pointed away from himself. That that's a part of who he is. So in John chapter 3, my favorite speech in the Bible, which illustrates this point, and then we'll, we'll, uh, you'll see how it ties in with the Daniel deal. John chapter 3, uh, John and his disciples. So John the Baptist had disciples of his own, and they were baptizing out in the wilderness of Anon near Salim. And uh, John 3 tells us that after Jesus had his interaction with Nicodemus, he and his disciples went out into the wilderness and were baptizing people, right? That, so now we've got, in, in a, the same body of water, we've got Jesus and his disciples baptizing people in the same place where John and his disciples had had a robust ministry until days before, right? John the Baptist was famous. He was very popular. There were a lot of speculation about who he was. If you look in John chapter 1, there are people that come to John the Baptist and they're like, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Like, are you, who are you? And he's like, I'm just the one paving the way, pointing ahead to the Messiah. But, but he's a well-known figure, John the Baptist, right? He's got a lot of people coming out to be baptized by him. It was a baptism of repentance, right? So, they're coming out to be baptized, and on this particular day, as Jesus and his disciples have showed up, John the Baptist's disciples are jealous. They're jealous, right? It's funny where jealousy or like competition rears its head. One of my favorite things that happens at Hume Lake sometimes is, uh, you know, we, we do, uh, at the end of the week, we always do victory circle. Some of you might know what that is, but on the last night of camp, we'll have a bonfire up there or across in meadow or whatever, and we'll invite the kids to talk about what God has done in their life during the week. And there's a funny pattern when if you've been around camp long enough, you start to see some of these things, but there's a funny pattern where you'll get, you know, you'll get a kid that'll stand up and say, I just want to, I just want to thank God because you know what, it's been a hard week, but he really met me in a powerful way, you know, and, and the kids kind of clap. And then another kid will get up and he'll be like, I just want to thank God because it's been a hard month for me and God really met me in a powerful way, you know, people clap. And then another person's like, well, it's been a hard year couple years for me, you know, and then another person, and it's like, they, they have to have a, a like a more, uh, a more dramatic story than the person that went before them, so pretty soon it keeps escalating and escalating, and you get like a kid who stands up and like, well, I just want to thank God because my dad is the, you know, he's the owner of a Mexican drug cartel, you know, and you're like, that can't be true, you know, and then the other one's like, my parents were killed by robots, and it just like, it just goes crazy real fast, like, and it's because we just have to have a more dramatic story. As a counselor and a leader at Hume Lake, I always thought, like, we don't, there's no need for competition here. Just tell us what God has done in your life, right? We're not, nobody's going to win Victory Circle. John the Baptist's disciples come back. Read this with me. It says in John 3, 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. 
John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. People were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So here's what this is. This is the disciples of John the Baptist that come to him and say, hey, you're not going to believe what we saw today. We we were down the way and you know that guy you were telling us about? Uh, You know, the Lamb of God or whatever. He's got that blue sash and the beard, right? That guy has some gall, right? He's over there with his disciples and you know what he's doing? He's baptizing people. He's not called Jesus the Baptist. You're called John the Baptist. He should know that's in our branding, you know? He's got a long line of people over there. In fact, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to freak you out, but he's baptizing people and everyone's going to him. Now, we know that's an exaggeration. We know it's an exaggeration, but in that moment of competition, they, they feel like they've lost their ministry. They feel like they've lost the viability that they had. Whatever fame, whatever, uh, whatever acknowledgement they had, whatever reputation, it's going away. They had a long line of people over here to be dunked, and now those people have a long line. So, so the essence of what they're saying to John the Baptist is, you know, we're going to have to print up coupons or something, right? Two-for-one dunking specials on Thursdays. or like, we got to do something to get our peeps back. And John the Baptist, and it doesn't tell us anything about timeline here, but John the Baptist responds, and, and I kind of believe this just came out of his guts. I don't think he went home and thought about it. I think in the moment, he, he speaks what to me is the most fully formed philosophy of ministry in the whole Bible the fully formed philosophy of ministry in the whole Bible. And it's vital to us as we're thinking about being people of influence in exile or whatever, what it means to be an ambassador. Here's what John the Baptist says. They say, he's taking all our people. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you've ever heard this speech, it's probably just that last sentence painted onto a plaque or a doily at Hobby Lobby or whatever, right? The whole thing is beautiful. It's all meaningful. And and actually, you can't even understand that last sentence without understanding the whole context. So I just want to look through it systematically with you because it, it is the essence of the same thing we're seeing in Daniel, but it is, in my opinion, it is vital to what it looks like to be an ambassador in 2022. The first thing I want you to see that John the Baptist says here, John answered and said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The first thing we see in John the Baptist's response is dependence, and I know I mentioned that already, but John the Baptist recognizes and sees in himself a dependence upon God. He says, nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. And even that statement is a two-sided coin, right? So on one hand, what he's saying is, on one hand, what he's saying is, you know what? If we got a long line of people over here to be baptized, God gave us those people. And if they go somewhere else, God's in charge of that too, right? And he'll either give us something else to do or he'll call us a different direction. But praise God for the ministry we've had. And if that ministry changes, that, that shouldn't really ruffle our feathers because nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. He recognizes that his viability, his ministry, the the, the impact that he's had was always only ever dependent upon God. Daniel recognizes, he's standing before Nebuchadnezzar, that yeah, he's going to be able to do what the other soothsayers and enchanters and magicians and wise men couldn't do. But Daniel knows from the outset that he's not doing that, that he couldn't do it, that if it was just up to him, he'd be a dead man like the rest of the wise men. That there is a God in heaven who, who can answer dreams, right? John the Baptist says, no one receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, Right? What's he saying there? Peter's saying, whatever you got, God gave you. Whatever you bring to the table, whatever it happens to be in your basket or in your tool belt, God, God stocked that anyway, so use it for God's glory. All the dominion and the glory belong to him anyway, right? John the Baptist looks at his disciples in, the, in their distress, and he says, nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. And I said it's a two-sided coin. 
The other side of the coin is this, that what the people can get from John the Baptist is infinitely less important than what they can get from Jesus. Does that make sense? So when he says, right out of, his, out of the gate, out of his mouth, he says, nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. He's also saying, it's actually better for our customers if they go over there and meet the Son of God than if they just get dunked under the water by me. We, we can't hear this enough, you and I. Because sometimes we, we sort of get this misplaced understanding and we almost can get to a place where we're leading people to us. We're trying to do the saving work. We're trying to do the apologetic work. We're trying to win the people over. And it's vital for us to understand that our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our children, our parents, our grandparents, there's nothing we offer them that they need as much as what they need from Jesus. So for us to take a posture like Joseph, like Daniel, like John the Baptist, of pointing away from ourselves, that's just not, it's not only an acknowledgement that everything comes from God anyway, it's also a recognition that it's better for our coworkers if they meet Jesus than it is if they just meet us. Because all I can do is dunk people in the water, you know what I'm saying? He says, nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. The power is from God. I remember I was teaching at... Uh, I was teaching at Thousand Pines for a, a junior high camp. This is several years ago. And after one of my teaching sessions, there was this cute little, you know, some of those junior hires are like, they have to be six years old. I have no idea. They look like they're just little, tiny little beans of people. But this cute little girl, she comes up and she goes, Pastor McWaters, Pastor McWaters. And I said, yeah, hi, what's up? What's your name? You know, she told me her name. And she goes, I just wanted to tell you that I can tell you are anointed by God. And I was like, oh, you know, it's like I didn't really know what to say, but I was like, that's, wow, that's really nice of you to say. And like, I, I certainly feel called to do what I'm doing. She goes, no, no, you don't understand. She goes, you are anointed by God. She says, every time you read the Bible, your face takes on a heavenly glow. And I was like, wow, you know, like I honestly, I didn't really know what to say, right? So um, I was like, oh, that's so nice of you. Like nobody's ever said that to me before, but I like, I really appreciate it, and that's, it's meaningful. Again, I feel very privileged to get to serve God and use my teaching gifts. And she goes, no, every time you read the Bible, it's, it's a heavenly glow. And then it dawned on me that, like, a couple of years before that, I had stopped using, like, a, just a regular paper Bible, and I'd started using the iPad. And so I, um, I saw it sitting on the podium, and I said, oh, is it, uh, does it, when I read the Bible, does it look like this? And, my, of course, my glasses pick up the reflection of the iPad. She goes... Never mind. And she left. That was it. It's really good for my, like, ego. You know what I mean? It, like, knocked me down a couple of levels. And it, I think it kind of ruined a very spiritual moment for her, which wasn't my goal. But it was a great reminder, right, that everything those kids need, God's the one who, God's the one who can give them that, not me. So he's, he's dependent. Secondly, back to John 3. I know I'm moving fast, but, but I get excited about it. Whatever. Stick with me. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Verse 28, he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I don't know if he's frustrated when he says this, but as a Bible teacher, it's amazing how many times like people repeat back to you things that you've said and they clearly don't remember that you said them or whatever. So he's like, you know, you just said that I'm the one who told you about the guy that's coming before me, right? He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Not only is John the Baptist dependent, but he's defle deflective. I, I mentioned this a second ago, but in John chapter 1, in verse 20, uh, when, those, when those people came to him, when the Jews and the, and the chief priests sent to question him, they said, who are you? In, in 19 and 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I love the way that, that John the Baptist perceives himself. And I think we see that in Daniel and in Joseph as well, that they see themselves as a, just as a flashing signpost, Right? That I, I exist just to point people away from myself, to redirect them to, to Christ. I, I think, um, you know, like human beings, we want an idol. You know, it's, it's significant that God doesn't allow us to have idols. I think he doesn't allow us to have idols because we are his image bearers. So if there, if there are 
idols in, in God's kingdom, it's you and me. Not, not an idol that gets worshipped, but a physical representation of what God is like. We do that as we are conformed to the image of Christ, right? But, but we want heroes. We want to put people on a pedestal. We want to lift them up. And the reality is that for you and I, if we're not actively deflecting people, they will elevate us. They kind of can't help themselves. They, 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 I mean, I saw this when I was in a band. I see it in a neighborhood. I see it as a pastor. Pe- people want to make a they want to make a pastor have some sort of secret knowledge or some sort of special power. They want us to be more than we are. And, and you don't have to be a pastor to experience that. The reality is, if we're not actively redirecting people to Christ, they will focus on us. Daniel does this well in Daniel chapter 2. Joseph does it beautifully. Uh, Peter does it in Acts. There's, there's lots of places where these guys point away from themselves. So dependent, deflective. And then thirdly, back to John chapter 3. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And then he gives us uh, literally like a sermon illustration. I don't know if you think sermon illustrations are straight out of the 80s or if like we just invented that in America or whatever. John the Baptist does it right here. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John looks at his disciples and he says, you've misunderstood who I am in the story. He's like, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands off to the side. I don't know if you guys have ever had an opportunity to be a best man or a maid of honor, matron of honor. It's a position of honor. I mean, that's why that's in the word. It's a a cool thing to stand next to your brother or your sister or your family friend to to be there on the day of their wedding. But But to understand the illustration he's giving, can you imagine for a second if you had no idea what a best man was, right? Or if you had no idea what a maid of honor was, your friend says, hey, I want you to be in my wedding. I want you to be the best man, and uh, you're going to need to go and get a tuxedo, and you're going to need to show up early. You're going to have flowers, the whole thing, get a speech prepared. If you, if you falsely, if you misunderstood the role, and you show up to the wedding thinking that the day is going to be about you, that the whole thing is about you. I mean, best man seems like a big deal, right? How, how frustrated are you going to be the whole time, Right? You walk down the aisle and literally nobody is looking at you at all. You're standing in the front and there are no sets of eyes looking at you. They're all looking next to you. They're all looking away from you. If you think that day is going to be about you, you're going to be upset the whole time. You're going to feel jealous. You're going to feel angry. You're going to feel ripped off. You're going to feel like you got dealt you know, a bad hand or whatever. And that, that frustration is going to stir you to want to sort of steal the attention, right? If you're the best man and nobody's looking at you but it's supposed to be about you, well, you know, maybe you, maybe you do a little soft shoe, you get a little dance number in, maybe you lean in for a kiss of your own. You know, just, I don't know, you work that out how you want. It's going to come off the rails really quick if you misunderstand your role. John the Baptist says, I'm not the center of this story. I'm, I'm, not, at the, I'm not the focal point of human history. It's that guy over there. I'm the guy who stands to the side and rejoices at the joy of another. So my third point tonight, not only is he dependent, not only is he deflective, but he's dedicated to the joy of someone else. And, and again, as Americans, like <laughs> this is totally lost on us because we've been told from the times we were little that we need to be dedicated to our own joy, right? There are a lot of people who come to faith because they, they want their own joy, right? I want to walk on streets of gold and have my prayers answered and I want doves to land on my shoulders or whatever, right? We've misunderstood the role, and so sometimes you, f- you find yourself in deep frustration or depression or anger, desperately trying to draw attention to yourself, desperately trying to understand why you're not the center of the story, and it's because you just misunderstood that you're not the bridegroom. You're the friend of the bridegroom who stands to the side. John says, I, I know why you guys are frustrated, and it's because you think this is all about us, but it's not about us. It's about him, and, and actually, it's, it's pretty cool to stand to the side and watch people meet Jesus. This is what we live for, right? When you understand your proper position, when you understand your role, being a best man or a maid of honor can actually be a lot of fun, right? It can be really fun to be invited there. I'm not going to, I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but one of my favorite stories out of John 21, we're not going to turn there because we don't have time. But in John 21, there's a great, um, you know, resurrected Jesus returns to Galilee uh, his disciples have returned to the, to the Sea of Galilee. They're fishing. He fills their net with fish. It's longer than that. But then he invites them. They, they row into shore. And when they get to shore, it tells us in John 21 that Jesus is uh, he's cooking breakfast. He's got a fire, and he's cooking fish. And when they get out of the boat, 
he invites them to bring some of their fish and add them to the fire. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever, I'm like a lot of times when we read John 21, you're racing to the part where he reinstates Peter, right? That's the part where most people spend their time. Slow down next time you're there. Look at this story about this breakfast. Number one, if Jesus is cooking fish, ah, how good is that fish, right? That's got to be an incredible breakfast. Don't you want to taste the fish that Jesus cooks? It's got to be good. Number two, where'd he get the fish? We don't know. We don't know where he got the fish. Uh, I'm guessing because he's the creator of the universe, he took his skillet down to the water's edge and went, hey, it's me, Jesus. And the fish were like, okay, Jesus. And they jumped in the pan. I don't know. But he brings it back. He's cooking on the fire. He's already cooking breakfast. And then he says to them, bring some of what you've got and add it. Why does he do that? If, if Jesus needed more fish, he could have just created more fish or he could have had more jump in his skillet or he could have caught more wherever he got them. He's Jesus, right? So if he needed more fish, if he was desperate for more fish, he would have had no trouble getting more. So why does he invite them to add theirs? I think, it's just a guess, but looking at the rest of the biblical narrative, I think Jesus wants them to enjoy the joy and privilege of participating in a thing he's already cooking. And that's moving to me. It's moving to me. Because like, he didn't need their fish. But he wanted them to enjoy the participation of it. He invites them in so they can be a part of what he's doing. It, it is not coincidental to say, too, that all the fish they add, they only had because he filled up their net, right? So the fish they bring, they wouldn't have had if he didn't just fill their net. They had no fish in their net. So he fills their net. He starts to cook his own fish. And then when they come to shore, he says, why don't you bring some of your fish, which is his fish, too. And then they're all working together. Can I tell you, that's a beautiful picture of, of life as ambassadors, he invites all of us, bring what you've got and add it to the fire. I'm cooking up a thing here in your neighborhood. I'm cooking up a thing here in your, in your doctor's office or in your architecture firm or in your elementary school. I'm cooking up a thing with your family this year at Thanksgiving and I want you to add what you've got, add it to the fire. Not because he needs it, but because he wants us to enjoy the experience of participating in what he's preparing. And everything we bring, he put in our net first, right? I got sidetracked, but I get excited, so... Deal with it. We'll be fine. I got time anyway. Oh, yeah, we're great. We're almost done. He's dependent. He's deflective. He's dedicated to another. He's dedicated to the joy of another. And then last, and this is the famous part, in John 3, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And uh, this gets quoted a lot out of context. And most of the time when it gets quoted, it gets quoted like a... Uh, Almost like a mantra, like a thing we have to uh, actualize, you know, that if we repeat it enough, we'll make it true. That's not what John the Baptist is doing. In, in the context of what he's just said, he's not saying like, if we work hard, you guys, we'll make Jesus famous, right? He's not saying like, let's all give it our best try to really make Jesus a big deal. No, what he's, what he's acknowledging is the nature of the universe, that just the trajectory of human history is such that he is preeminent. Colossians 1 tells us that. Philippians 2 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That's not something you and I have to make happen. That's not something that like, oh, you know, the hosts of heaven are waiting with bated breath to see if every knee will bow. No, that, that's coming, right? It's coming. And the sooner we can recognize that like he will increase and we will decrease, then you can rest in it. It's kind of fun to be a, a, a child of the, the king of the universe, right? But as long as, as, long as you're fighting that battle, it, it can be really frustrating. So, so let, me, let me close with this. I'll finish here. When we look at Daniel 2, and I know, I know we didn't spend a ton of time there, but I want to say, again, for me, what we see there is similar to what we'll see later in the week, too, and we'll talk about some of that more in depth. Into Daniel interprets this dream, but for me, the most important part of that dream interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar learns some things, and Nebuchadnezzar elevates them at the end of Daniel 2. He elevates them to positions of authority, which will be uh, uh, significant as we keep going. But the most important part, I think, in Daniel 2 is not the dream or its interpretation or even the fact that Nebuchadnezzar learned something about the, um, about the majesty and the grandeur of the kingdom of God, the eternal nature of that. I think the most beautiful thing in Daniel 2 is that little moment where Nebuchadnezzar, having already issued a death decree, looks at him and says, can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? And he says, no. He risks his own life to point away from himself. And he says, but there's a God who will reveal these things to you. And then he goes on to reveal it. To me, that's very instructive. 
And, and the place I want to finish tonight is with, is with this. Um, in our lives, we are trained to do things for a payoff, right? So, so our lives are centered, we, we're all vocational people in one way or another. Even if, you, even if you're a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home mom or whatever, if you don't, if you don't work a full-time job, it's no big deal. But we're all, we're all working. We're built to work. We're working to, to get something, right? You're, you're doing it for a purpose. And for most of us, that's a paycheck or whatever. The hard thing about being an ambassador in the kingdom of God and trying to be an influential person even in exile or whatever is that the, the payoff doesn't seem like it's worth it, right? So, so there are some of you, even as I say, like, let's live this life that points away from ourself. Let's live this life that's about, like, making sure people go across the river to Jesus instead of just camping out with us. There, there might be a math problem you do in your head and you go like, What's in that for me? Like, that's really, it's really hard to, like, point away from myself. Like, I, I'm not going to get any more Instagram followers that way. I might never be, you know, I might not ever sell any Christian books. I might not ever be, a, you know, have a podcast that gets any listeners or what. I don't know. That, like, fame and money and power and pleasure, these things, they can get in our minds. And we start to even think of our service of the kingdom of God uh, for the payoff. The problem is... Um, that if you, re- if you read the scriptures, what you learn is that the payoff of faithful discipleship is not for us, right? So if <laughs> what the call of Jesus is not like, come and follow me and I'll make you rich or happy or whatever. What he says is, come and follow me and I'll give you a cross you can carry to your death, right? These are Jesus' terms. It's a call to sacrifice. And so for those of us who've been raised in a system where payoff is everything, it sometimes can be hard to find the motivation to live a deflective, dependent Life dedicated to the joy of someone else and decreasing, right? So I want to finish with, with a story that illustrates the other great motivator in our lives. We'll, we do hard things for payoff, but in the case of ambassadorship and discipleship, the payoff is not for us. The payoff is for Christ and his glory. So what's the motivator then? I was, uh, I was in the Fresno airport. Some of you heard me tell the story before, but... I was in the Fresno airport when my son Hank, we were traveling. My son Hank was like three, and he was in that like potty training stage, right? And uh, Hank was at this stage where like if he said, hey, I need to find a bathroom, he didn't mean like in the next 45 minutes it would be great to find a restroom. Like if Hank said he had to go to the bathroom, you had like 20 seconds on the clock, you know, it was like a time bomb. So we're in the Fresno airport, we're getting ready to fly to Vegas or someplace, and uh, and my son Hank goes, Dad, I need to go to the bathroom. So I, I don't know if I was reading a magazine. I like, drop whatever I'm doing. I scoop that kid up, and I'm running through the Fresno airport with my son, just trying to get to the men's restroom in time, right? People are looking at us weird, you know, whatever. I run through. I get into the men's restroom. I find where the stalls are. I fling open the door. I set my kid down. I yank down his, his pants, and I don't want to be too graphic, but it's too late, right? It's too, like, the, the timer ran out. And uh, so there's a mess, you guys, right? There's a mess on... Hank and on his clothes and on the floor and on his shoes and on my shoes and my pants and it's just just a mess. And there's a moment there where I thought to myself, I'm just going to put this kid in the trash, right? Because there's like one of those big, those big, like one of these trash cans. I thought, I'm young, you know, like I can have more kids and this messy kid will be like a, he'll be like a fixer-upper kid for some other family, right? Who wants another kid but maybe he doesn't, can't have one or whatever. They'd be like, oh, somebody threw away a perfectly good kid. We just got to hose him down, you know? So there's a moment where I'm thinking, like, how do I get away from this? You know, like, I just do, this is not, I don't want to be here, you know? And then I look down at Hank, and he looks up at me, and he's sobbing. He's ashamed and embarrassed, and so I start to clean him up. Uh, the next memory I have is of cleaning these tiny underpants in the bathroom sink uh, in the Fresno airport of all places, right? I see my reflection, and I think to myself, like, when did I become this guy, you know? Like, when did I become the guy who does this gross job? But I, I got them all cleaned up, and that was the end of that. Um, there wasn't a point that day where Hank ever thanked me for that. There were no other parents in the bathroom. Like, there wasn't, like, a line of people being like, you, sir, are an excellent father, you know? We're going to call Oprah Winfrey, and she's going to do a special, you know? Like, there's, no, there's none of that. There's not going to be a day in the future where Hank calls me and says, like, Dad, do you remember that day in the Fresno airport? So inspirational. I've decided to become a missionary or whatever. Like, that, that thing's not coming around, right? There was no payoff for me. It was only gross. So why did I do that? I did it because of how much I love that kid. 
And if, if we find ourselves in the course of trying to live this Daniel 2 life that points away from ourselves, this John the Baptist, John 3 life that points away from ourselves, dependent and deflective and dedicated to somebody else's joy and decreasing in significance, if you find yourself going like, yeah, but what's in it for me? <laughs> There's, the answer is, it's not for you. It's for Jesus and it's for other people. So how do you do it? Well, don't focus on the payoff for you. Focus on your love. Focus on your love for the Lord Jesus, firstly. Secondly, focus on your love for your neighbor. It's interesting to me that when, when they ask Jesus, like, hey, what's most important? He's like, love God, love your neighbor, everything else will sort itself out. Why? Because love is the motivator. Love is the fuel when there is no payoff. And there is a lot that God has called us to as disciples for which there is no payoff. There, nobody's writing you a paycheck or patting you on the back. So why do it? Because of your love for Christ and your love for his creation, specifically in the men and women created in his image that you pass by day in and day out. Why do we do the hard things? Why do we point away from ourselves? Because nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven, right? We aren't the Christ. We're just the ones who've come to, to carry this message of reconciliation. We're not the bridegroom. We just stand to the side and celebrate at somebody else's joy because we're decreasing and he's increasing and it's better for them to meet him than it is to be dunked by us. I think Daniel does a beautiful job of that here and God, God continues to use him and to increase his influence in the midst of his deflection, which is really beautiful as well. And when we get to Daniel 3 tomorrow, actually Daniel 3, we won't talk about Daniel, but we'll talk about something else and that'll be tomorrow. So let me pray for us. Hey, by the way, um, I'm, I'm here solo this week, so my family, my, my kids are doing VBS in Fullerton, and my wife, she doesn't really want to hang out with me, so, she, no, I'm kidding, she, uh, she's home with the puppy and with the kids and whatever, so I'm, I'm here, I'm by myself. I will be out most days at the picnic tables reading a book, but I couldn't care less if I finished that book, so if you want to talk, you got questions, you want to chat about this or something else, come get me. If you see me reading, interrupt me. I don't care about finishing that. I'll finish it on my vacation in the fall. I'd rather talk to you. So I'm available. We, we can hang and chat if you'd like. But let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for the example of Daniel. And I, I even, even as, I, as I praise you for the example of Daniel and the way you worked in him, I, I got to back up and thank you for the example of Joseph. Because I kind of think Daniel was thinking about Joseph. That then stirs me, God, to think about my own life and how often I think about John the Baptist. And what John the Baptist said and did, he didn't do with me in mind. He did it because it was right and true, and yet it's had an impact on me throughout my life. And so, God, would you also help those of us in this room, like you've helped Joseph and Daniel and John the Baptist, to be people who are dependent and deflective and dedicated to someone else's joy and, and content in our decreasing for the sake of your glory and the good of others? And will you use our lives in such a way that maybe, who knows, maybe in a thousand years from now, someone will look back and hear a story of a time when we could have said yes to a thing that we chose to say no to simply because we wanted to point people at you. Thanks for Daniel's influence in a pagan place. Thank you for the way you used him and the way that you give us the opportunity to be used to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.